Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine, and you are listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Fago. He is PwC US Power and Utilities Deals Leader. Jeremy, thank you for coming on this program, and please tell a little bit about yourself and what you do with PwC. Yes, thank you very much. Um, now, uh, as you mentioned, I, I lead our Power and Utilities Deals uh, platform here for PwC. Been in the industry for a number of years now, and um, really, really, my my role is to ensure that uh, our clients that are in the in the deal space in the industry uh, have the advice and um, skills they need from our firm to support all all life cycle uh, the whole life cycle of a deal. Um, so, it's a pleasure to be here with you today, and look forward to the conversation. PwC recently published a report focused on power and utilities merger and acquisition deals from the prior 12 months, and it also included an outlook for 2022. Can you talk a little bit about that report and what your biggest takeaways were? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. You know, we've 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 certainly seen a change in the type of deals over the last several months from what we saw the previous decade, and, and I'll go into that a little bit. But some continuation expected into 22 from what we saw in 21. We saw volumes as we defined deals in the space hold pretty consistent over the last several years, including last year. Uh, size of deals has certainly changed. And that goes to the, the point I made about just the types of deals we, we're seeing these days. And I, and I think that was an expectation that we put out there several years ago um, when we looked at the types of deals that were being done at that time. And, and as a result, we expected a, a, a bit of a dearth in mega deals as we moved into this period of time, including 21 and 22. We did see a bit of a slowdown in 20 with obviously with the pandemic and with coronavirus and, and COVID, but that started to pick back up the second half of 20 and, and continued into 21. Um, and we expect some of the same things to play forward as we get into 22. But um, as we think about just what was happening and we again we think that the the mega deal dearth is really a function of just the fundamentals of the deals that were done previously more so than any type of economic drivers um, or the pandemic itself and and as we look at those deals that were done in kind of that 16 17 18 time frame those deals were really done most of those really big deals were done at a very high premium in a lot of cases or platforms that had tremendous growth opportunity, particularly around the infrastructure needed to support a lot of the transition that we've been undergoing for some time in the sector. So for example, gas pipeline and and some of the LDC um, areas of of natural gas transmission. And, you know, we saw a lot of, you know, balance sheet capacity come to the table to buy some of those platforms with the strategy really being, and the, and the reason, the rationale for some of the premiums that were paid really being t- to buy the ability to deploy capital into those platforms for a long period of time organically. So a bit of an, a, 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 you know, a cycle of inorganic activity really with the rationale to be able to focus organically into those platforms over the longer term. So it's not completely unexpected to us that what we're seeing now is kind of more portfolio and asset level deals, which bring, you know, kind of smaller deal value numbers to the table, but certainly the volume still, still consistently been there over the past several years. And something that I know I have seen a lot of companies talking about is environmental, social, and governance 
policies and, and practices and ESG, as a lot of people talk about it, and it seems to be kind of out there with all companies, uh, whether they're in the power industry or other industries. Do you see that playing a, a big role in deal-making decisions these days? And can you talk about maybe what you're seeing as it relates to ESG and deals? Yeah, certainly. So as the audience and, and yourself are well aware, you know, ESG is, is everywhere now. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to continue. And a lot of the companies in this space, in fact, most of them have, have set some type of goal out there, particularly on the environmental side around carbon reduction, in some cases, a net zero target, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And so I, I think it's become table stakes at this point. And we've certainly heard as some of the narrative underpinning and the strategy underpinning some of the deals that we've seen over the last several months, ESG being a function of that. And so I think we're going to see some continuation of that as we move forward. And, um, you know, we've, as you, as you think about the goals that were established, the, the focus is quickly turning to, okay, we've set these goals. How do we execute on that? And how do we meet those goals that are out there, particularly as in some cases, technology isn't necessarily there yet to get us all the way to where we want to be from a, from a goals perspective. And I think what we're, what we will see and what we have seen is, is deals is going to be a bit of an inflection for that where perhaps portfolios and we expect some portfolio reshuffling as a result of this, where perhaps there are, there are businesses within um, larger companies that don't necessarily fit those ESG goals bespoke to that company and the vesture of those platforms to recycle that capital into potential opportunities that do fit that profile or, or you know, for example, zero emission renewables or, or electric storage or carbon capture, whatever it is, being able to recycle that capital into different assets as a result of that. And it's going to be very dependent on not only the existing portfolio, but also what are the opportunities in your particular area and in your particular footprint to be able to do that. So I, I think we will continue to see that. We've, we've seen it um, as certainly a reason for some of the deals that have been done. But again, it's going to be very dependent on, on what the opportunity is for a particular company um, and how quickly that capital can be deployed and, and um, you know, what the appetite is for that. So I, I think we'll see that manifest itself in deals and not just take organic shape um, within portfolios because deals, as we know, is, is one of the ways to do that and, and accelerate some of those some of those strategies going forward. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're talking about the power and utilities industry, the E part of the equation, which is the environmental part, it, there's a broad spectrum out there. You've got some companies that are you know, highly focused on renewables and, and, you know, they would probably fit into that uh, desirable category for investors that are focused on ESG, whereas you have other utilities who still have a lot of coal power and gas-fired power, fossil fuels that they're using. So there's probably a little less uh, apt to, to be getting investments from certain types of investment firms. So does that... play a factor in these deals and does it change any of the rationale for deals that have been completed in the past? Yeah, I know it's an interesting question because as you think about the rationale, kind of taking a step back to how we started the conversation, you think about the deals that were done middle part of last decade 
and the platforms that were really a big focus on the natural gas side, you know, there, there had been some pressures on those recently as far as, you know, even though they're less carbon intensive, they still have a carbon intensive uh, intensity, intensity to them. And I don't think the rationale for those deals has been upended in any way, shape or form with, um, with where we're sitting right now. I, I think as we think about this transition, we're going to have to do it in a manner that ensures that that and we're going to have to do it thoughtfully to make sure that reliability is still very much there to support the infrastructure and the transition that we're trying to undergo. As you think about, you know, the 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 wave of coal retirements we went through and natural gas generation kind of stepping in to to fulfill that baseload piece of the supply stack and then with the increased penetration that we've continued to see with renewables and the intermittency that that brings you know backstop capacity related to natural gas peaking um, has been very necessary to support that and with electric storage still kind of garnering um, some traction but still needing more scale I, I think the natural gas piece of the equation is going to have to be around for a while and I think there's going to continue to be capital deployment and opportunity around that to support the fact that we're we're changing how we look and how we get our electrons and underpinning all of that is need to change everything that supports that so infrastructure on the transmission side infrastructure and transporting gas to a gas plant that may be where a coal plant used to reside so you're not railing coal but you're you're needing to pipe gas to that facility so I think that's going to continue to play forward and there's going to continue to be real reason to continue to support those platforms. And therefore, I think the rationale that was there five, six, seven years ago to acquire those those natural gas platforms is, is still very much alive and well. You know, taking that a step further, as you think about new technologies and maybe new commodities, I'm thinking, you know, renewable natural gas or hydrogen, for example, those platforms, you know, probably can be leveraged to support that as well. And so innovation doesn't necessarily need to be a wholesale wholesale change around around the ESG space, but you know, innovating around existing infrastructure and existing businesses is is very much um, an opportunity that I think is out there. And so I think we'll see some of that play itself forward as well. And I think as you think about deals impact on ESG and or ESG's impact on deals, you know, it, it also probably is going to depend a little bit on who your stakeholders are. Who are your investors? Is it private private money that's investing? Is it infrastructure fund? Is it are you a publicly traded company? And those investors may have a different perspective on who they want you to be. And so I think there will be kind of win wins across the board as people look at their portfolios and say, well, maybe this particular business doesn't necessarily fit my profile or what my stakeholders are telling me they want, but it's still very much needed as we go through this transition and as we try to ensure that we have reliability, which frankly could get taken for granted, the fact that we do have a very reliable grid and that that grid can become life or death and certainly in extreme um, situations with, with weather and things like that. Maybe there's opportunity to maybe shed some of those assets to somebody that may be able to, to get higher value out of it as a result of the sentiment of my stakeholder base. And I can take that capital and put it to work in something that maybe is is more accommodating to to my stakeholder base. So I, I do think that um, I do think there's there's still ripe with opportunity. I don't think that the the rationale for the deals that have previously be, been done, despite the really rapid pace of change that we're going through, has necessarily been diluted in any way, shape, or form. 
Concerning other aspects, such as regulatory and legislative measures, is there anything that, that you think we should be keeping our eyes on that could influence power and utilities M&A activity? Yeah, no, I think that this is a timely question given where we're at. And I think we are kind of, as an industry, waiting is probably even beyond the industry, waiting to see what comes out of Washington in the near term. I think there is a lot of wait and see as far as does the Build Back Better plan come out in some form? What are the incentives and the devil the devil's going to be in the details related to what the incentives are for you know, carbon, uh, zero, zero carbon or carbon reduction technologies through tax credits or whatever it may be. And what is, you know, what does that look like? And I think we are seeing folks kind of wait to see and, and scenario plan around that to say, okay, how does this investment potentially look with and without some of these incentives? So I think that's going to be a key piece of it because that will drive, I, I do think that'll drive both, both organic activity, but also inorganic activity on the deal side. And then I think it's going to be, you know, there's the obvious stuff that's out there from a macro perspective, Fed policy, you know, we're expecting some easing now. The Fed signaled interest rates will, will be rising this year and we'll see how that kind of plays out because as money becomes more expensive, we, we may see some pressure on values and, and potentially a separation of bid-ask spreads on deals that may somewhat slow down the actual activity related to that, not just the valuations. We'll be watching all of that stuff. And then, you know, beyond kind of the legislative aspects of incentivizing uh, renewable or, or um, carbon reduction, there's also broader tax reform potentially hanging out there. So what, is, what do tax rates do? do they, are they presumably going to go up? Um, and then what does that mean to the industry broadly and, and how does that impact businesses and how they think about deploying capital as a result of that too? So I think it's going to be a, a lot of those things. And then to take it to kind of more of the regulatory side of things, you know, we, we operate in a world in the U S where every state has a, you know, you're, you're, you've got state PUCs. Every state has a different kind of lens on that very bespoke. And, you know, some states bring with it kind of known at harm rules of thumb related to your impact to the customers. Some actually clearly state net benefits are necessary as part of a, as part of a, a deal. And so I think that, you know, with that, and then you layer on things like ESG, I think there's going to be a brighter, um, brighter light on deals as to not only do you, you know, in certain, for example, if you're in a, a net benefit state, does this deal need to be a beneficial cost to the customer? How does this fit into your ESG strategy that you've already put out there? And is that, does that really line up? So I think there will be some, some potential challenges there or some potential additional scrutiny. But on the other side of that, then you've also got a lot of the state PUCs really advocating for this transition and, you know, how does regulation support that? How do you, how, what are the mechanisms to enable companies to go deploy capital into these ESG-esque platforms and, and, you know, really being able to drive forward investment to lower carbon footprint going forward and what are the incentives therein? And, and then, you know, what's the associated cost with that? So I think those are all going to play together in how we think about deals broadly. Hmm. A lot to think about in there. 
So is there anything else, you know, other areas that you might be watching that could impact uh, M&A in the space? Yeah, we've certainly covered a lot of it. But, um, you know, I think as you, as you think about just the overall economic state of play, what are the inflation, what does inflation look like? You know, that's a big topic of conversation lately. You know, what are the supply chain aspects? How, do the, how quickly do the bottlenecks clear up, particularly if you think about importing materials for renewable generation, for example? You know, and the you know, overall price of the commodity, you know, what do oil prices do? How does that impact uh, natural gas prices locally? How does that impact kind of dispatch profiles of generation and, and maybe what the cost of certain types of technologies look like as we go through this transition and focus our, you know, focus our, our efforts on the longer term strategy? So there's a lot at play. It's not a, um, you know, it's certainly not a hold all else equal uh, environment by any stretch, but there's certainly a lot of things to keep an eye on. Yeah. Yeah. I I heard you mention several things that I've been keeping an eye on the, the supply chain being one of them, the price of natural gas being another. I know just recently I was looking back at, uh, 2021 statistics and I know the average price of natural gas in 2021 was double or more than the average price in 2020. So what's it going to do going forward? And, and that's a good question. You mentioned hydrogen, which we have been keeping an eye on and think is really important as a decarbonization strategy for, for some of these existing gas plants. So uh, you definitely are, are watching a lot of the same things we are. Anyway, it's been a pleasure having you, Jeremy. I appreciate your insight, and and uh, I guess I give you one last chance to to share any th- last thoughts before we wrap up the show. No, I, I appreciate the time, Aaron. I think you hit on all the keys. It's a very dynamic industry and a lot of moving pieces, but um, I think it's uh, it's certainly ripe with opportunity, and it's been an, it's a it's a very exciting time to be a part of it, given given the transition that we're all going through. Again, I just want to remind listeners, I've been speaking with Jeremy Fago. He is PwC U.S. Power and Utilities Deals Leader. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Have a great day.